Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you very much, Hui. Uh, very good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to church. Good afternoon or good evening, good morning for those of you who are joining online. Uh, great to have you join us. Uh, God, thank you that you do sustain us, uh, that you give us life and health and salvation in your son, Jesus. And thank you that you speak to us in your word in the Bible. And Lord, we recognize that sometimes your word is difficult for us to understand or to accept. It says hard things to us. Uh, when that's the case, Lord, help us not to turn away in ignorance or indifference or hardness of heart and unbelief. But instead, Lord, guide us by your spirit. Help us to understand your word rightly and to see Jesus clearly and to love him more dearly. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. A strange thing happened to me the other day uh, while I was watching Netflix. Instead of the normal sort of catalogue of shows that it suggests to me, um, I was given different suggestions, you know, like the Gilmore Girls um, or all these Jane Austen adaptations or this weird sort of genre that's Christmas-themed romantic comedies. Um, and to put it mildly, I, I don't normally have the patience to be able to watch these kinds of shows. And before I added myself to the, you know, the, the list of a million people who are unsubscribing from Netflix nowadays, I, I discovered the problem. I was, I was using my wife's profile. It took me a little while to figure that out. You would have said that straight away. I was using my wife's profile. I, I saw the Netflix algorithms for her shows, not, not for mine. Now, of course, so much of life nowadays is, is guided by Netflix, not Netflix, algorithms. Whether it's Netflix or Spotify or YouTube or um, how you do your shopping uh, or the, 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 the social media feeds, what you, the advertising you get on there or, or the news and opinions that, 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 that are streamed to you. So much of our lives is guided by, by algorithms where the certain choices and the preferences, the decisions that you've made in the past now used to filter out all sorts of things that might be uncomfortable, unpalatable, even offensive to you. And so your tastes and preferences are catered for. 
And it goes for, for so much in life. Uh, everything gets tailored for your preferences. Your TV shows and movies, your music, your fashion, the advertising, uh, the news and opinions that you get all the time. Uh, everything gets tailored for your preference according to algorithms. And the thought occurred to me that, that maybe we'd also like an algorithm Jesus. A Jesus who is tailored to our tastes and preferences. Someone who says the things that we want to hear, who's not too offensive for us. Someone who is going to put up without mistakes. Someone who is going to be permissive when we don't do or believe in the right thing. Someone who's going to answer us according to our prayers whenever we pray. Someone who is comfortable for us because an algorithm Jesus is a comfortable Jesus. But it's not the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Yes, the Jesus that we find in the Gospels um, is a man of incredible compassion and insight, but he also says things that deeply offended people, that were confronting and difficult for people to hear way back then, but are also confronting and difficult for people to hear today. I think Mark Twain uh, represented a lot of people when he said that the things that Jesus said which he found most hard to take were not the things that he didn't understand, but the things that he did understand. That's the case with so much of what Jesus says to us. We find it difficult and confronting even when we do understand it. Now today we're beginning a short series entitled Hard Sayings of Jesus. Now to be honest, this could have been a really long series because there is a long list of hard sayings of Jesus. But we're going to confine ourselves just to four sayings that we find in the middle of Luke's Gospel. And this short series is for everyone. You know, maybe you're here today and you're exploring Christianity. You're trying to put the pieces together. You're trying to figure out the Bible. You're a little bit sceptical, but you're here. And it's great that you're here. But maybe you've been a Christian for many, many, many years. And like many Christians, you have a habit of selectively listening to Jesus. But if the Bible is right and Jesus is indeed God, then our attitude shouldn't be, I'll listen to what Jesus says here, but I'm not going to listen here. I like what he says here, but I don't like what he says here. Rather, if, if Jesus is indeed God, then we should allow him to look at our own lives and our own hearts and we listen to him as he says, I like what you're doing here, I don't like what you're doing there. Now, today's passage that was just read... Um, there are two instances of suffering and tragedy described. And twice, Jesus responds by saying something which seems really hard. He says, but unless you re repent, you too will all perish. How can he say this? I mean, what, what is he talking about? Well, as we look closer, Jesus is helping us to, to, to understand and to process suffering and tragedy uh, by doing two things. He's providing a correction and secondly, a warning. So first of all, we see the, the correction. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are travelling from Galilee to Jerusalem and by now, Jesus is well known and crowds often come to him and listen to him and ask him questions. On this instance, there is a question about a recent tragedy that everybody knows about. Some Galileans had been put to death by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate 
while they were trying to offer sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. We don't know too much about this incident. We don't know if it happened in the temple itself or outside the temple. We don't know why these Galileans were killed. All we know is the Roman governor used force and people died and it made news. Everyone was talking about it. And so some of the crowd wanted to know Jesus' opinion. Uh, maybe they were, they were looking for him to make a, a political statement, but it's more likely they were looking for theological commentary. Here is this celebrity, up-and-coming rabbi. Everyone's talking about him. What does he think? What, what, what commentary? How can he interpret this particular tragedy? Because Jesus says in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? But he doesn't stop there. He, he immediately gives us another incident. Because in verse 4, he talks about another incident, the second tragedy, where in Jerusalem at the intersection, this place between the southern, the southern walls and the eastern walls of Jerusalem, um, there is this reservoir, a pool called Siloam. And evidently, there was a tower on the wall there and that tower collapsed and killed 18 people. Because at that first incident, people are wanting to know the reason for the tragedy. Now at this second incident, everyone's wanting to know the reason for the tragedy. And Jesus says, those 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? Two tragedies, two instances of suffering and people want to know, why did these things happen? Did these people who die deserve what came to them? And with both instances, Jesus says exactly the same thing. Were they worse sinners than other people? I tell you no. I tell you no. Now, when tragedy strikes, almost everyone asks the question, how could God allow this suffering? We want an explanation or at least an attempt at one. And so we rush towards all sorts of explanations. Maybe it's because... God allowed free will in the world, and people always choose badly. Or maybe it's because a really incredible miracle is going to come, which will undo this tragedy. Or maybe it's because, you know, God wants to teach me something out of this mess. Or maybe it's because I did something wrong. God is punishing me. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples walk past a man who was born blind, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. In other words, who's responsible for this? Who's to blame? Last year, you might remember, we, we looked at the, the book of Job, a long book in the Old Testament that's dedicated to the theme of suffering. And we met Job, who was described as a righteous man, and yet all these unspeakable tragedies fall upon him. And as he's trying to figure out why all this has happened... His three friends, his three miserable comforters say to him, Job, consider your life. Think upon your sin, Job. You must have done something wrong to deserve all of this. And Jesus' audience had that same mindset. Those Galileans who were killed at the temple or those people who had the tower fall upon them, they must have done something bad to deserve all this. Because if you do good things... Good things will result to you. If you do bad, bad things will result to you. It's a very moral, a very religious way of looking at life. You know, if you're good, if you obey God, if you say your prayers, if you turn up, then God will give you the good life. And that ancient 
way of thinking is also still very modern, it's very, very contemporary. If you do good, good things will come to you. And it goes the other way as well. So, if something's gone bad, you want to know whether you've deserved it. You want to know what you can do to fix it. You want to know what you need to do in order to live the good life. Uh, many years ago, a, a colleague of mine, um, had, his wife, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And he said to me, you know, Alex, if, if we have enough faith and we pray hard enough, will God provide healing? In other words, you know, if we're, we do good by God, will God do good by us? And that might have happened in your experience. Maybe you've gone for a particular job, your dream job. You put an application, you got some interviews, but then you didn't get the job. And you share with your friend, you say, you know, I don't think I really prayed enough about this job. Maybe that's why I didn't get it. Now look, often in life there are consequences for our mistakes. We, 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 we do something wrong and there is damage, maybe in our own lives or the lives of those people around us. And yes, there are instances in the Bible where God does deliberately send suffering upon His people as judgment, as punishment towards them. But that can't be applied universally. It's just too neat to say good things always happen to good people and bad things will happen to bad people. It's just too too much of a problem to assume a tight relationship between sin and suffering. Firstly, it creates a uh, tremendous pride, a self-righteousness in those who are living a good life. There is this natural tendency in the human heart to want to take credit for the things that we've done well. So deep down, we might say to ourselves, well, things are turning out right for me because I've done something right. Things are turning out right for my kids because I'm a good parent. Things are turning right in my career because I'm more hardworking and intelligent than other people in my industry. Things are turning out right in my relationships because I'm just more popular, more savvy, I have more social skills than other people. There is something natural in the human heart that wants us to take credit. And so when things are going well for you in life, you can have this sense of superiority. You look at those for whom life is a mess and you say, well, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. And we get this sense of false assurance. All I have to do is keep living properly and God will give me the good life. But then secondly, we also know it's, just, it's not true to the realities of life, to the facts of life. Sometimes really good people live difficult lives of suffering. They kept get, getting visited by grief and bereavement over and over again. And then sometimes people who are terrible live long lives, prosperous and die happily. You know, to say otherwise is just to have a pretty narrow view of life. That's why when Jesus is asked about these tragedies, He provides this correction. He rejects a simplistic view of suffering. Yes, judgment involves suffering and yes, sometimes suffering is judgment. But no, not all suffering is judgment. Sometimes we just do not know in the mysteries of God's way, this side of heaven, we won't be given an answer for why bad things are visited upon us. So firstly, Jesus provides a, a correction, but then also He provides a warning. 
Twice, he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Uh, Let me just pause here and recognise that some of you might be going through a difficult time at the moment. Or you might have experienced sometime in your life a really difficult time. It's felt like a tower has literally fallen on you. Um, You've been visited with terrible circumstances. It, It could be health, your job, your family, a bereavement. Now, there are many places in the Bible that will speak to you and your situation. Places that will provide words of support and encouragement and and comfort and hope. But to be honest, this passage is probably not one of them. Okay, because as we'll see a little bit later on, Jesus is, is not speaking to people who actually had the tower fall upon them. He's speaking to others who are actually getting through life probably okay. Nevertheless, Jesus is saying something really hard here, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So we want to just talk about the two different parts of that statement, beginning with the second part. When he says, you too will all perish, he's not talking about death, because death is a given. It's the, it's the universal human experience. We all encounter it, we can't escape it, no matter how much we try. When he says, you two will all perish, he's actually talking about something that's far worse than death. He's talking about judgment and separation from God. Listen, if if, if you're new here to church today, if if you're not a Christian, Jesus is alluding to something here which is picked up way at the beginning of the Bible. You see, God didn't create this world to have suffering and death in it. He created a paradise. God didn't create a world filled with with suffering and disease and death. But when people turned away from God, when we rejected God, then the world became broken. The world stopped working properly. Uh, Everything went wrong. Sin and death and suffering entered into the world. And therefore, there is a sense in which the human race got the world it deserved, it, it asked for. We turn away from God, and when we turn away from God, the world becomes broken. The world doesn't work right. Human sin has created a world where everything is broken. Now, let me just push this a little bit further. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, has this incredible definition of sin. He said, sin is man curved in on himself. Sin is humanity. Sin is people introspective, curved in on themselves. When Luther defines sin that way, when he defines what the Bible says about sin that way, he's saying we're all focused in on ourselves. We're always choosing ourselves instead of God and for others. We're always at the centre. What that means is, yes, of course you do bad things, but what's really penetrating about this definition of sin is even when you're doing good things... It's still about yourself. Even when you're turning up, even when you're studying the Bible, even when you're being incredibly moral and following the religious rules, even when you're being generous and serving the poor, it's still about you. Sin determines that you relate to God and other people where you are setting the agenda. It's still always about furthering your agenda so that you can get what you want out of God. He can give you the good life that you want. He can give you the self-image that you want. He can give you the control that you want. And then when you're not getting the things that you want from God, you leave. Why? 
Well, because even when it looks like you're serving God and other people, you're still wanting to be in control. You're still wanting to serve your own agenda. You're serving... That's how insidious sin is. And the vast majority of the time, we're actually oblivious to the hold that sin has over our hearts. It blinds us to its all-pervading power. Martin Luther was right. Sin is man curved in on himself. Look, do you get what Jesus is saying here? He's saying we all deserve to have a tower fall on us. We all sin. We all deserve to perish. That's why this is a that's why this is a hard saying. This is why people get offended. Often people will get offended by what Jesus says. Because on the one hand, he's saying, don't get so smug and think that these people are worse than you because you suffered. But then on the other hand, he says, all people deserve to perish because we all turn away from God. We all deserve that eternal separation from God. Now, this is going to offend people because we want to believe that we're not as flawed as we really are. We're not as selfish as we really are. We're not as bad as we really think we are. And what God is going to say, what we hope, is that He's going to say, I'm going to forgive you regardless of what you believe or what you do. Because we, we, we believe that since God is a God of love and grace, that it's His job to forgive us. He's got to forgive me. Now, think about your life. Think about, you know, as I reflect on my own life, I think about all the stupid choices that I've made, the stupid decisions that I've done that I actually haven't suffered the consequences for. All the ways I've actually I've treated people harshly, unfairly, and I haven't suffered the consequences of it. All the different ways I've turned my back on God and yet He hasn't turned His back on me. No one has received even a tenth in return for what they've done. And yet we really find it hard to acknowledge that reality. And so the first part of this difficult statement is there. Jesus says, you're all going to perish. That's the warning. And then the second part is his command, repents. Now, now what is repentance? At the first level, um, repentance is simple honesty. It's a, it's a deep recognition of your own fault. Uh, some of you might have heard of the, the, the non-apology apology. The non-apology apology. We, we sometimes see it in public figures, leaders and politicians and celebrities. Um, they've done something or said something which has crossed a moral line and some people are offended and outraged. And in order to appease those people who have been offended and outraged, they express some contrition, but they fall short of actually acknowledging wrongdoing. And so they'll say something like, well, I'm sorry that you were offended. Or, mistakes were made. That, that's the non-apology apology. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we do that all the time, right? We do something that we probably shouldn't have done. Someone is hurt. And so we say, sorry. We say sorry, hoping that that will solve all the problems and make everything go away. But we stop short of actually taking responsibility for our wrongdoing. There's still a defensive mindset in our hearts, and so we might do something like blame shift. It wasn't my fault. My mum made me do it. 
It wasn't my fault. My boss made me do it. We blame something or someone else. Or we, um, we, we, we tear down somebody else in order to make ourselves look better. So we might gossip or tear somebody. You think what I've done is bad? Let me tell you about him. He's, he's far worse. And so we, we blame shift or we bring other people down. And sometimes we act this way to God. We acknowledge that, yes, we've done something wrong, but we stop short of fully taking responsibility for our actions. There are always other factors. It's, it's the non-apology apology. In Psalm 32, King David does something different. He says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is simple honesty. What's he doing? He says, I'm not going to cover up. I'm going to acknowledge. I'm going to confess. It's all my doing. No one else is responsible. I'm, I'm, that's simple honesty. Accepting responsibility. That's the first part of repentance, but it actually has to go further. We need to have this sense of sorrow for sin. Sorrow not just for the consequences of sin but sorrow for the sin itself. Um, let me explain the difference. Uh, remorse is looking at all the mess that you've, you've done around you when you've made a mistake. You look at all the mess, the hurt that you've caused other people, and, and you look at the damage, and yeah, you get mad at yourself. You reproach yourself. You say to yourself, I'm an idiot. Look at how I've hurt people out of this. How could I have done such a stupid thing? Remorse is important, don't get me wrong, because it gets you to, to, to look at the damage that you've done around yourself. But remorse on its own is not enough because remorse just gets you to look at the damage that you've done around yourself and you stop short whereas repentance goes further and it gets you to see the offense that you've caused God because if you're simply sorrowful for the consequences of your mistakes that's not actually going to change your heart too much because as soon as you have the opportunity to repeat that act without the consequences you're going to do it right because you kind of like doing it you did it in the first place and if you can get away with it without the consequences you're going to do it again but real repentance comes when we turn back to God not out of self-interest but out of a deep love for him and a concern for his glory now again let me let me push you by saying repentance is needed throughout life. Repentance is needed not just when you make a mistake and life is going badly, repentance is also and it's especially needed when life is going well for you. Let me explain. Did you see who Jesus is talking to here in this crowd? It's, um, it's his disciples, it's other Pharisees, uh, it's people who trust in the Scriptures, in the Bible, it's, it's religious people, it's moral people, it's people who turn up to church, it's people who follow all the religious rules. And yet Jesus still says to them, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Which means repentance is more than just saying sorry for the bad things that you've done, for violating the religious rules. It's more than just saying sorry for when you cheat or you lie or you sleep around or you rob a bank or something like that. It has to go far beyond that because these people were living very moral lives. They were ticking the religious boxes. 
Repentance has to be more. Jesus is showing us that we've also got to repent when we're substituting other things in our lives instead of God, when we're chasing other things in our lives more than we're chasing God, when we're chasing even good things in our lives, good family, good health, good career, good social causes. But he's also saying you've got to repent when you're trusting in something else for your own salvation. When you're trusting, for instance, in your moral performance, when you're trusting in your religious works, when you're trusting in, you know, you're turning up, you're studying the Bible, you're being generous, you're getting involved. You've got to repent of your own sense of goodness, of self-righteousness. You've got to repent of being your own saviour. Now, do you see what this means? It means we have to repent all the time. You know, Martin Luther, one of the other incredible, he said many incredible things, but he kick-started the, the Protestant Reformation when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And the first of that 95 Theses was, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ desires that the entire life of the Christian be repentance. That means we repent all the time. Not just when you've made a mistake and there's mess all around you and you can't escape it, but you also repent when life is going well. And all the things that you're chasing after more than God, you're getting. You repent when you're turning up and you're performing all the religious rules and you're getting generous and you want to give yourself a pat on the back because you're trusting in yourself to be your own saviour. Do you see what this means? You're in more danger, spiritually speaking, when life is going well compared to when life is going badly. Because when life is going well, this sense of self-sufficiency and complacency sets in. You can be in real danger. Now, Jesus wants to push us, and he pushes his followers more because he gives them this parable about this unfruitful fig tree. You know, there's this guy who owns a vineyard, and in the vineyard, there is this fig tree that he's planted, and for three years, it hasn't borne fruit. And because it's taking nutrients but not providing any fruit, he's going to cut it down. But one of his vineyard workers says, let me fertilize it and let's give it one more year. One more year. What's Jesus talking about? What's this fruit that God wants? It's repentance. It's us turning back to God over and over and over again. It's the changed heart which produces a changed life. That's what God wants from us. A changed heart which produces a changed life. He's eager for it. He wants to see it in us. And he is patient. He says one more year for that fig tree. But his patience will not last forever. Now look, Jesus does say hard things to us. It's things that confront and offend us and are difficult for us. But the thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says he calls you his friend. And what do friends do? They speak the truth in love to one another, even when that truth is difficult. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. Repentance is difficult. But gospel repentance, if you understand it properly, is also joyful. Because yes, on the one hand, you are humbled by repentance because you're coming to acknowledge that you're actually far more sinful than you, than you thought. 
But then on the other hand, gospel repentance will lift you up because you see that Christ has borne the punishment for your sin himself. You haven't borne it. You know, the judgment, God's judgment, that tower fell upon Jesus rather than falling upon you. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Perfectly obedient life. But at the cross, that tower of God's judgment, which we deserve to have fall on us, fell on him instead. And so we can look at gospel repentance and say, yes, it brings me down to the depths because I see my own brokenness, but it also lifts me up because I see the extent of God's love for me in Jesus, that he did not withhold his son, his one and only son. And so gospel repentance is joyful because you see the extent of God's love for you, but also it gives you this poise and stability regardless of the circumstances that you face in life because you know that, okay, yeah, sometimes there's collateral damage for my sin in this life now, yes, I make stupid choices, sometimes bad things will happen to me. But God is, not, God is not punishing. Jesus has taken my sin. And so it gives me incredible poise and stability and security in life to know that God is for me. God is for me all the time. And so I'll repent quickly, eagerly, joyfully, repeatedly, thankfully. Because Jesus has given everything for me. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we sometimes recognise that reading your word, listening to you speak to us, is difficult. Um, because we're confronted by some hard truths about our own lives and our own hearts. A lot of our own false assumptions come crashing down about us. But Lord, you are kind and you are gentle and you are overwhelmingly loving to us because you've given us your son Jesus who suffered all of our judgment for sin upon himself on the cross. Lord God, we want to ask for your forgiveness. Um, forgiveness not just for those blatant things that we do wrong that cause so much damage to other people, but also we want to ask forgiveness for our own sense of self-righteousness and, and, and spiritual pride for trusting ourselves rather than trusting entirely in what Jesus has done for us. So would you help us by your Spirit so we can see ourselves correctly, but also see the expansive love of Christ, the height, the depth, the breadth of what he has done for us so that we wouldn't meet judgment ourselves and can look forward to an eternity with you. Uh, so would you guide us, Lord, um, we forget pretty quickly. Our hearts wander away from you very quickly. Sin blinds us and we're often ignorant of that. So would you convict us, remind us over and over again by your Spirit? Would you uh, help us to put good habits in place so that we are quick to repent and joyful in repenting? And would you remind us all the time, Lord, of what Jesus has done so that we would not take credit for the things that we have done and we give our lives to him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.